Events of the past few years have forced us to confront some of the hazards inherent in our ever interconnected world. And of course, I'm not going to mention, well, I now am mentioning COVID-19. Um, in the 21st century, the gravest challenge to our security appears to lie in the fact that our societies seem ever more interconnected, ever more entangled, reinforcing the power of a shock in one part of the world to transmit its disorientating, troubling effects around the world. And we are told that we, weigh, we face the real possibility of new future shocks, of new waves of epidemic disease, for example, with possibly worse outcomes. And when the, today's lecture date was fixed, uh, I didn't realize it was coincident with the COP26 summit opening in, in Glasgow, but certainly future shocks are definitely on the agenda there. So shocks can be environmental, geopolitical, technological, uh, or social. The only certainty seems to lie, in the words of one recent scientific assessment, is that there will be more of them and they will severely challenge political stability, social cohesion, economic prospects and the natural systems which support us all. In this lecture, I want to argue that our perception that the dangers presented by this ever greater interconnected world are new. This is a typical historian's claim <laughs> that nothing is ever quite new in the way that we think it is. 100 years ago, Europeans similarly confronted the challenges of connectedness. They also had to deal with what they described in the language of the time as unprecedented crises or blows. In the 21st century, we tend to think about war and peace as absolutes, to think about historical periods of time as periods of crisis or stability. Uh, uh, so we have kind of moments where things are very stable, there's equilibrium, and then we tip into a state of crisis and instability. And for historians of the 20th century, this has taken uh, shape in the way that we tend to think about, or well, we begin to change it a little bit, we tend to think about the history of the 20th, 20th century, which is that it has a grand historical narrative punctuated by two world wars and a cold war. So there are periods of stability, and then there's a, the First World War, then there's kind of sort of stability, instability, but it's actually the interwar crises of the 1920s and the 1930s, which is a long run-up to another world war, and then the Cold War, which tends to be regarded as a period of stability in Europe, albeit um, based on a divided continent and, and a presentation that tends to take out the imperial conflicts that are happening at the same time. So actually, though Europe is relatively stable, of course, there are colonial wars being waged in different parts of the world. But since the 1990s, and certainly since the impact of the credit crunch in 2008, it feels as if we are revisiting the turbulent years of the 1920s, a world rocked by geopolitical change, so the rise of China and the relationship of the United States with China, financial crises, epidemic disease. And for us, therefore, the history of the 1930s, which is always seen as just financial crisis and then a long road to war, that coming and a bunch of coming centenaries really cast a long shadow over our own prospects in the 21st century. 
uh, and, I, and I became very aware of this fairly recently because I was involved in giving quite a lot of talks around the end of the First World War, where that was kind of relatively stable, and I suddenly thought, and this is where the good story ends, because actually after this, there's, there are a lot of very uncomfortable centenaries coming, um, and at the moment, of course, the Government of Ireland Act is, is one of those um, that separated the island of Ireland. Anyway, in this lecture, I want to test this binary thinking of stability or crisis, equilibrium or shock by revisiting the history of Europe in the first half of the 20th century. I want to show how Europeans confronted the challenges of connectedness in a turbulent world, a turbulent world that faced a series of crises, disease, hunger, environmental degradation, escalating inflation, and rapid political change in an emerging new world order. We tend to think about the search for sustainable security as a 21st century challenge. It sounds like a 21st century term. But in fact, in the 1920s too, contemporaries described these challenges as one of interconnectedness and as one of creating sustainable security for Europe in a global world. So this is not a new framing. This is an old framing. Um, that we, we think is new. And they understood the term sustainable to mean the creation of a durable peace within Europe and beyond the continent's frontiers. So European security was always placed in a global context because, of course, many of the European powers in the 1920s and 30s were empires or wanted to be empires. Many historians, notably those writing in the 1940s, so the second half of the 20th century, tended to describe Europe and its place in the world as insecure from the moment the First World War ended. For them, the origins of the Second World War started already with the unfinished peace of the First World War. And what they focused on in particular was Franco-German rivalries, the sort of bitter difficulties that Germany and France um, had in their relationships from, from 1919 onwards. More recently, in about the last 15 years or so, historians have started to look further east to the history of Central and Eastern Europe when they've been thinking about the nature of peace after 1918. And they've looked at particularly how the violence of the First World War bled into revolutionary wars in Russia and along its borderlands in Central, Eastern and Southern Europe, uh, thereby becoming what, they've, what historians have described as a series of shatter zones. And most estimates now suggest that more people died in the period from 1919 to 1923 than in the First World War itself. So that's including, of course, the revolutionary wars that came out of Russia after the Russian Revolution. So that's one side. That's a lot, of, a lot of turbulence, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of suffering in the history of the 1920s and its aftermath. At the same time, the 1920s also witnessed major advance, advances in the theories and practices of international relations. Men, women, many of them young, founded a raft of new international and non-governmental organizations. Um, and on my introductory slide, you can see uh, it's a picture of the opening meeting of the International Health Committee of the League of Nations in 1920 that became the basis of the World Health Organization. And this is just one of, there were hundreds and hundreds of new bodies that were founded in this first wave of sort of trying to build a new international order that was stable. Um, after the First World War. 
the Paris peacemaking process in, in uh, the Paris the peacemaking process in Paris um, and its aftermath also generated a new body of international law that's foundational for the way that we think about international law also in the 21st century. So that the whole of this period is also made redolent with calls made from people across the ideological spectrum for international cooperation. Different types of international cooperation, but for international cooperation. And it laid the seeds to a series of initiatives that were fundamental to the reset of international relations after 1945 and remain essential to the practice of international relations in the 21st century. So in this lecture, I want to ask, how can we understand this apparent contradiction that I've tried to set out between these two grand narratives, the twin tracks on which Europe found itself in the 1920s and 30s? Conflict on the one hand, the persistence of conflict, suspicion, uh, and on the other, this desire to create a new international order and a new type of international relations. And secondly, what does this history have to tell us, if anything, anything useful, about how we should think about and manage future shocks as Europe and the world, frankly, searches for a sustainable security in the 21st century? So I want to spend some time looking at the effects of shocks that hit the territories of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire in the first years after the First World War. And I want to look at how they shaped the new international order from below. So what was happening on the ground and how did that project up into this new project of international organisation and lawmaking? And in that setting, in this international setting, the Brit Britain and its allies, France and the United States, dominate. So this history shows how shocks, social, political and economic, involve very different understandings of territory, borders and time. And as a result, they tended to create diverse and sometimes competing narratives as to the value and purpose of cooperation. I spend quite a bit of time in the lecture thinking about Austria on the one hand, because it's a very neat little case study, and Britain, to show how they may have had similar ideas as to what security comprised, but they had starkly different resources and national and international tools at their disposal when it came to trying to sustain it. And one of the things that's very different about the period between 1900 and, say, 1950 that's similar to the world that we live in today, is that people in that period and earlier recognized the world to have finite resources. It wasn't, it wasn't infinite resources. You couldn't grow your way out through economic growth or technological innovation in the way that people had great confidence in this in parts of the 19th century or after 1950. So the idea that growth was a solution is a bit more problematic in the period that I'm studying. So the first part of the lecture explores the core features of the New World Order, which was intended to frame a path to sustainable security, to durable security. In the middle section, I spend a bit of time looking at environmental questions and particularly uh, food shocks. And I want to explore how hunger related to other challenges or shocks in the international system. And in fact, we saw how hunger surface as a major concern of food supplies um, a number of times in, in our, our own recent history. And I want to show how this then put Europe on a collision course by the 1930s. 
And the conclusion then very briefly sets out what changed after 1945, and it points to a core lesson that I think we can take from the challenges that confronted Europe after 1919. And that is, and so this is a kind of spoiler alert, that there is, it's the need for international cooperation may, may be self-evident, but the meaning and purpose of international cooperation is not. So, in 1920, the, the British Royal Institute for International Affairs opened its doors at Chatham House. It's about 20 minutes away from here. The Chatham House's founding vision articulated a commitment to helping Britain and Europe develop what it called sustainable security. It's in the covenant of, the, of, the, of Chatham House's founding charter. The institute itself was part of a wider movement determined to uh, increase states' accountability. So it aimed to help governments and civil society develop a more complex understanding of foreign policy. Public opinion, after 1918, would have more of a say in international relations than it had in the past. The creation of Chatham House was part of the peacemaking process in Paris. So the arrangements for Chatham House were made in the Hotel Majestic in Paris in conversations that were also had with American delegates and French delegates that were attending the peace conference. So it brought together a rather different community of people to the diplomats who were in the main um, diplomatic halls in the Palace of Versailles, for example. Discussions with the US delegates were held to determine the purpose and form of these new bodies. And at the same time as Chatham House or the Royal Institute for International Affairs was founded, so too was the US Council on Foreign Relations. And there were similar sorts of bodies that were set up across Europe, in Asia, in the Americas, in, in, in Europe. One of them was the Handelshochschule in Berlin and the Graduate Institute in Geneva. And there were also new foundational chairs in the field of international relations. This is a brand new field of study in universities um, around the world, which is attempting to understand the consequences of the First World War and also how to do effect diplomacy in international relations in a way that doesn't produce another great conflagration. So the notion of exchanging ideas and engaging public opinion on matters relating to, to international affairs was deeply controversial. We take it for granted in the 21st century that public opinion should have something to say about international affairs. This was a brand new thing. It was controversial even in democracies. There were fears about the role of journalists, uh, what the British Foreign Office called busybodies, and their hold over public opinion. And politicians and their advisers also worried that the open discussion of foreign policy would allow, would make them leak, inadvertently leak official secrets. So they weren't used to this new public interface that the First World War demanded of them. And of course, the First World War demanded this for, for a variety of reasons. A more democratically accountable foreign policy was inevitable. It was the outcome of political bargains that were made during the First World War to sustain an unprecedented war effort. If you were going to put large conscripted armies into the field, you're expecting people to fight these wars for, for years at a time. You, they, you know, they wanted something back. They wanted an, a foreign policy that was accountable. There was some kind of bargain in this, in this relationship. And of course, there was also the monumental collapse of empires across Europe. Uh, so democratic politics expanded markedly as a result of the First World War. The German Empire gone, Russian Empire, Austrian and Ottoman empires. So this creation of, 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 new, of new democracies 
new nation states, and also the enfranchisement of women in many, though not all, territories also increased the voice that people had in the making of foreign policy. So in short, the prosecution of total war and its outcomes changed both the composition of states and states' relationships to society, especially in relation to foreign policy. At the same time, the peace conference itself, so very quickly after the war had ended, the peace conference itself made politicians acutely aware of the challenges of engaging public opinion in international relations. As Lionel Curtis, who was a British, uh, British colonial office official, put it, the settlements of Paris um, were mainly the resultant of public opinion in the various countries concerned, which publics were often in conflict. And the future moulding of these settlements would depend on how far public opinion in these countries would be right or wrong. So the prospects of peace was now lay in the hands of the public. And those of you that ever studied the story of Lloyd George and reparations on Germany, squeezing Germany till the pips squeak, that's always a story about the role or history about the role of public opinion in the way that it changed British approach to peacemaking and Germany in that moment. So Curtis also points out that right public opinion, so there's kind of there's wrong public opinion and right public opinion, and right public opinion was produced mainly by a small number of people in real contact with the facts who had thought through the issues involved. So on the one hand, it was great you had all this public opinion, on the other, it needed to be made sound. So Curtis is on his feet at a, this day-long meeting between British and American delegates thrashing out what Chatham House and these new international bodies to promote uh, the study of international relations will be. Um, and he makes two key points. And the first one, I hope, is clear from the slide. It's his stress on the importance of experts drawn from particular groups who had been in close contact with one another and had thought through the difficult often technical issues involved. So he imagined these men, for in his mind, of course, they were all men, would help the public opinion's view on foreign policy cohere. So you would educate the public in order that they collectively would produce one sound opinion. His second key point was that neither foreign policy nor public opinion should be guided by the calculation of a narrow or individual interest Rather, interest needed to be very broadly conceived, for in his words, it was the advancement of universal interest that the particular interests of several nations alone would be found. So this is, sounds a bit confusing. There's a kind of stress on the one hand on universal opinion and on the other particular opinion. And actually what that gets at is the way that Curtis reflecting actually a broad perspective of opinion in Britain and the empire, thinks that on the one hand, it's great that you have this democratization of, of public opinion, but on the other, the globality of voices, the number of voices in the conversation needed to be controlled. So you have this kind of claims to, to universalism on the one hand, but actually what he's saying when he says particular powers is what he has in mind, he's a, an official of the British colonial office, is Britain and its imperial allies. So he's thinking about Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, and even India. And that's important because at the same time as Curtis is making this point about Chatham House, 
He is also arguing for the creation and the, and the structure of this new organization, the League of Nations. So what, this, what he's getting at is that you have to have, in any global organization, you have to have a number of powers that understand one another that will then pursue a particular line that is in the interests of everyone. Of course, it isn't always necessarily in the interests of everyone. So the creation of a new international organization, the League of Nations, to promote international coordination and cooperation was point 14 of Wilson's 14 points. And these were the basis on which the armistice was agreed in 1918. And of course, Wilson famously ran into difficulties with the American Congress and the United States never joined the League of Nations. So as a result, very quickly, within space of 12 months, Britain becomes the dominant power in this new international body. And that's really what Curtis is getting at when he talks about these particular colonial imperial powers. And as a result, Britain, as the dominant power in the League of Nations, starts to regard this new organization as a multilateral hub to manage its relations with Europe on the one hand and the empire on the other, both of which are inside this new body. The Latin, Central and South American countries are there, but the Americans are not. So the League of Nations was part of an attempt to establish rules and bureaucratic procedures on which stable and legitimate cooperation would depend. It wasn't intended to do away with balance of power, balance of power politics, which remained inherent to the League of Nations in the same way that balance of power politics are inherent to the United Nations and the relationships around the G20 that are currently probably queuing up for a stake in Glasgow. What the, well, they won't be eating steak, will they? They'll be eating something plant-based. Um, what the League did signal was that the world's most powerful states should be accountable to international institutions and international law. So there are problems around this organisation, which there is power. Not everybody is equal in it, but there are also international... There is international law. States will be held accountable to it. And the, this new intergovernmental organisation, for the very first time also creates an international civil service, a way of coordinating international relations, the nuts and bolts of how states relate to one another underneath. As I've said, the United States didn't join, although actually the Americans send about three or 400 of their experts to the League. They're always participating from behind the scenes. But all of the major European powers and lots of the minor European powers are in this new organization. Britain, France, and Italy dominate the organization. Germany becomes a member in 1925, and the Soviet Union in 1934. The Scandinavians are very present, so are the Dutch, the Belgians, and so on. There's an awful lot of hope riding on this new organization in 1920 as it's set up. But there's also a very important group of people who are excluded, and that's the uh, Africans who come and set up a Pan-African Congress in Paris in 1919. So exactly while the delegates are sitting in the, in the conference halls of, of Paris meeting to thrash out the future of, of map of Europe at, following the implosion of empires, the... Um, the Pan-African Congress also seeks to ask, well, asks that the League should promote the protection of African peoples. 
So it shall be the duty of the League of Nations to bring the matter to the attention of the civilized world. So racial politics are swirling all around this. And it's a world in the 1920s where people are hugely differentiated in their treatment before international law. So in this sense, the League of Nations is both enabled and challenged by this expectation that foreign policy will be democratically accountable because there are subject peoples inside the United States, African-Americans, subject peoples in Africa, subject peoples in North Africa who are part of the mandate regime who now want the League of Nations also to protect their interests. And the League of Nations is divided and problematic as its history becomes is actually very important to the kind of history that emerges out of it. So the League of Nations too, like Chatham House, was part of the effort to engage civil society in international relations. Public opinion was to be nurtured, but the right public opinion, the right kind of public opinion, so not the people that were meeting necessarily in the Pan-African Congress. And it was supposed to be nurtured and shaped. And this, this point about the relationship between public opinion and governments was very forcibly expressed in point number one of Wilson's 14 points, which is that public opinion should, uh, sorry, that international diplomacy should be publicly accountable. Open covenants, so no secret deals, open deals, openly arrived at, no private international understandings of any kind. Diplomacy should always proceed, frankly, in the public view. And this, what's unusual about this period of history in contrast to 1945 or actually other international moments um, in the 20th century and the 21st century is quite how much public excitement this founding moment creates. There's enormous expectation around a new, these new international bodies and this new form of international diplomacy. And these expectations, in a way, because they're so large, um, are bound to be dashed. But what's very striking, too, is at this time, in the aftermath of the First World War, probably... <laughs> Unlike many other moments in history, many political leaders sought to play an international role in order to, sh to shore up their position or to build a public profile at home. Um, it'll be interesting to see how many people try and do that in the next week or so in Glasgow. So these include figures like uh, Austin Chamberlain, Anthony Eden, Gustav Stresemann from Germany, and Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, the League of Nations is incredibly important to, in his attempts to build a presentation of modern Indian nationalism. Uh, um, and so he uses, the, he uses Geneva to protect power back into India. And through the League of Nations, these men articulated a wish to engage civil society in the project of world-making. But they had very different visions as to what that world should look like. So while the League of Nations bureaucrats Meanwhile, sought to promote coordination and cooperation between states in simple but significant ways. So they did really boring stuff like collecting and exchanging an awful lot of information. Um, and they developed a shared language of terms and standards as to what Europe was and what it comprised. They're, they're responsible for codifying um, what roads look like, 
the connecting train lines, um, for standardising types of economic measurement and so on. So it's kind of founding for, uh, well, fundamental for projecting what Europe is and projecting Europe into the world because this international organisation also creates a data bank that becomes the basis of the UN and global surveys on what the, Europe comp what the world comprises. So these are European standards that become international standards after 1945. But when the League of Nations opened its doors in Geneva in 1920, it first focused on promoting security in very traditional ways. So the first debates and discussions were about controlling weapons and about border control, about where territory is. Uh, and of course, that was because territorial control and the escalation of weapons, I mean, kind of war um, armament rivalries, were understood to be the causes of the First World War. But the organization was soon knocked by a series of shocks that prompted it to develop new initiatives and to think about what security comprised in different ways. So it's sort of in 1919, it's classically understood as the controlling of weapons and promoting um, the establishment of stable borders where territories are and where they end. In 1919, the problem was pointed out, or the challenge before everyone, by the South African, incredibly influential Prime Minister, Jan Christian Smuts, who identified the challenge before Europe very neatly. The war has resulted not only in the utter defeat of enemy armies, but has gone immeasurably further. We witnessed the collapse of the whole economic fabric of Central and Eastern Europe. Unemployment, starvation, anarchy, war, disease and despair stalk the land. So I now want to zoom in on the situation that Smuts was describing in 1919 and 1920 by looking at one of the most overt but often ignored manifestations of these shocks, hunger. And it's received a lot less attention um, from scholars than German reparations, for example, or more recently, the Spanish flu, which was also seen as a, a global shock. After 1914, and particularly after 1918, the continent of Europe faced what contemporaries caused a hunger crisis that reached epidemic levels. Europe, on, on one level, it wasn't really terribly surprising that Europe was hungry. Britain's blockade of Europe devised in anticipation of the First World War, was central to its strategy to contain and defeat Germany and the Central Powers. And it proved remarkably effective, not only because Britain had sufficient naval power to blockade all of the world's oceans, it also had enough administrative and financial resources to intervene in global markets. It's quite extraordinary that they were aware of what was being bought and sold around the world, so they can sort of check what was being sold in, in Tunisia or, or in the port of Singapore, or, and if they couldn't control it by um, administrative means, they would just, the British would just go into the market and buy up supplies that they thought the Germans or the Austro-Hungarians wanted. So this gives you a sense of Britain's, not just Britain's military power, but also its intelligence network and, its, and how deep its pockets was that it could afford to do that because they, they, you know, these prices are shooting up and the British just buy stuff to, to stop these commodities from falling into German hands. The other problem that Germany had was it had gone to war with its best customers, so this <laughs> increased the difficulties that it faced. But 
while Germany had problems around its food supply, and, and that was anticipated, the British anticipated that the Germans would have problems feeding its population, the circumstances of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were, were rather different. Austria-Hungary was understood to be self-sufficient in food. It produced enough food to feed its people. But shockingly, really very quickly, uh, this didn't prove to be the case. As the war opened, really, fierce ethno-national rivalries within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, fueled by the expectation of self-determination, which the Austro-Hungarian government also offering its subject peoples to keep them fighting, meant that previously integrated and sophisticated food markets began to fall apart. So when the Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire imploded in 1918, a new provisional state called German Austria emerged. It experienced an immediate and visceral future shock, an absolute dearth of essential commodities, notably coal and key foods. Figures suggest that in 1918, 1919, German Austria, as it was called for a very brief moment before it became Austria, was the hungriest place in Europe. It remained under Allied blockade from 1918 into 1919, so the blockade didn't end with the end of the First World War. Uh, and it also was now blockaded by countries that had been previously its allies in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So what became Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, new states that emerged from Austria-Hungary, also blockaded Austria. So this little place now found itself surrounded on all sides by a blockade. What did it comprise? Well, it comprised of the world city of Vienna, with a population of over 2 million, 2 million, 300,000 people, many more that then than now. Still, the population is still not recovered from this moment. Uh, and it had behind it the Alps, <laughs> and not much else. Um, it was, you know, inhospitable and mountainous. Its own uh, chancellor, Karl Renner, called it the remnant. Uh, the French premier, Georges Clemenceau, la reste. Um, the civil service in Austria described the problem more dramatically. It wasn't just the rump of territory that remained when other ethnic groups broke away for their own states. It was a place without everything so necessary for its own existence. Uh, so this is the kind of description that the Austrian uh, Office for International Relief and Mutual Understanding in 1919 used to describe the situation for this new territory. And I've included a, um, a, um, an image of the older Algemeines Krankenhaus, the, the main hospital, because that was actually partly how Austrians viewed themselves. They saw themselves as a kind of a sick people inside a hospital um, because they had almost no resources for themselves. Everything had to be brought to them. One of the first international observers on the scene in 1918, at the end of 1918, was William Beveridge, who uh, famous of the Beveridge Report and the founder of the, of the uh, Social Security of the NHS in Britain. At that time in 1918, he was Secretary of State to the Ministry of Food, and he wrote a powerful report on the desperate plight of the Viennese, describing himself as feeling ashamed before them. They were, in his words, beggars, sans food, sans country, sans money, sans everything. 
And he kept, he kept a diary of his visit to Vienna and Austria and the meetings that he had, and also a collection of grim photos. And here's a few of them. I, I'm, none of the quality is good, so I hope you can see what they are. Um, and these are not too distressing. Some of them are, are really, really awful. The, one, the top one is two brothers. And if you look a bit more closely, hopefully you can see that their bodies are deformed quite significantly by, by rickets, by malnutrition, which softens the bones. It means that people's legs are bent, their um, rib cages is distended. Um, they're quite old, the brothers. And then the other, the other photograph below is a picture of a family who have burned all of their furniture to try and stay warm. So it's the children that are underneath a single duvet. You get a sense of this kind of rather impressive uh, apartment, but Absolute, absolute destitution. He has about 20 photographs that are like this, and there are quite a lot of collections that other people who visited, so there's quite a lot of tourism, oddly, <laughs> in Central and Eastern Europe in the aftermath of the First World War. Seems, and, and quite a lot of the observers, other observers who go, go to visit Austria and, and travel on to other parts of Central and Eastern Europe have these collections of these malnourished children too. Beverage Beveridge's report and his preoccupations actually reflect a common view at the time, which, which is about his stress on the food quality as well as quantity. So there was a lot of interest in the problem of malnutrition in this future shock. So people weren't just, wasn't just about there being no food, but it was also about the quality that, of food that people had. And this was really also a consequence of the First World War. And it reflects a little bit, I think, on the world that we're living in too, the stress not on quantity of food, but the quality of food. It's obvious in the First World War, nutritional science emerges because it's the first time that states start to measure people's bodies as they're recruiting men into military service. It's, it's there in the Boer War, but it's very evident in the First World War also because they're now monitoring and trying to treat diseases of malnutrition that become evident with soldiers in the field of battle. And then in the First World War II, they start, they start to appear reports on the relationship between soldiers having diseases of malnutrition, catching contagious disease like cholera and typhus, and passing on to the civilian population. So now you have this link between malnutrition, disease, military stability, and civilian well-being. And of course, this then is a, you know, is a big worry as the world emerges from war in 1919. In 1919, the Medical Research Council, the British Medical Research Council, sent a group of women scientists from the Lister Institute in London to Vienna. They go to Vienna because Vienna in the 19th century was also medically incredibly well developed. It has some of the best hospitals, some of the best x-ray equipment, some of the best scientists in the world. So that's also why this reference to Austria being like a laboratory for disease, for malnutrition, is so evident. Um, and they work with a very important uh, pediatrician, Clemens Peter Freiherr von Pierke, Pierke, a long name, to his friends, who's pictured at the top, and the three women, three brave women uh, uh, from the MRC at the bottom, Harriet Chick, Elsie Daly, and Margot Hume. And they are especially interested in the effects of vitamin D on children, and they administer a carefully controlled diet to children, including a daily dose of cod liver oil, uh, which was donated to them by Norwegian fishermen. And this is the point at which they, in this already suggestive work, but they help prove that, vi that vitamin D helps treat rickets and then produces the calcification of bones that's essential to stop 
the suffering of children um, with these, with these deformed, permanent deformation of, of um, their bodies that you saw in Beveridge's photographs. Evidence, I mean, they were producing scientific reports, but Beveridge's reports and also journalist reports about the scale of infant and child suffering in this moment of 1919-1920 proved sensational. It prompted British women, Eglantine Jeb and Dorothy Buxton, to launch a campaign against hunger and the continuation of the Allied blockade of Central Europe. And that produced, these are the two photographs, I'm afraid they're my photographs, which is why they look a bit squiffy, campaigning leaflets um, which featured Austrian children, um, which led to the creation of the Save the Children Fund, uh, a new non-governmental organisation, it wasn't quite the language of the time, but a new non-governmental organisation which of course continues to this day. Austria was not the only place that was desperately hungry, it was just the first place that was desperately hungry that came to international attention. And but this kind of deprivation was acute across much of Central and Eastern Europe. And the Americans uh, and others became involved in trying to distribute aid, which actually over time enabled children's health to recover. And they also sent um, and supplied food, shoes and clothing. But what I want to stress here is not this kind of humanitarian aid, but the way that this experience of treating and triaging the Austrian food crisis also generated new ways of thinking about international security inside the League and populated this new organisation with experts. So some of the women that I showed you in the preceding slide, notably Harriet Chick, then go to work for this new international organisation. They argue for the rights of the child. They argue for much more important work to be done on nutrition and on, on epidemic disease. So this was not in the original planning when Wilson was thinking about what the League of Nations was going to do. They didn't think about health. They didn't think about food. They didn't think about social programs. These problems come from the ground up as they're confronted with the reality of peacemaking at the time. So Austria's plight 100 years ago highlights the interconnected challenges faced by states when they're trying to build sustainable security in a world of finite resources. Austria was deeply insecure right from the start, not because it struggled to deal with one specific challenge, which was hunger, well, the end of empire. Actually, that was a specific challenge, was the end of empire. Because really what was left was the kind of governing bit of the Austro-Hungarian empire. But because it also faced a series of interrelated shocks that followed from it, hunger, epidemic disease, financial collapse, which I haven't really talked about, uh, and wide-ranging geopolitical challenges all around it that, that territories and states that had been previously friendly were now enemies. Um, at, so they were having problems at the local, national, regional, and global level. The hyperinf So the kind of link, the next link I want to make is the way that this hunger crisis then triggered a financial crisis. The cost of the war and the reality of Austria's situation sent its currency into a free fall. And here too, the League of Nations was dragged in. So this is another way that this new organization and the meaning of security expanded. The League of Nations was brought in to stabilize the Austrian currency and the Austrian currency uh, and the Austrian economy, and Austria was put under international oversight, which is something that we associate with the International Monetary Fund or the European Central Bank. 
those practices of having a foreign commissioner coming in and telling you you can spend money on this, you need to cut money there, uh, you can borrow this, we will lend you this money, but you can only spend it in this sort of way. All of these practices emerged in 1920 and 1921 in relation to the Austrian financial crisis. And it meant that uh, Austria was stabilized, but it was also sort of um, experiencing a, a further shock. Sorry. So this slide shows you the different types of shocks and their interaction. The first one is, is the hunger and disease. What, what it shows, the top image, is of women and children digging around trying to find potatoes in the field uh, in 1990, and not really finding very much. They also go looking for wood um, on the floor, picking wood, not very much there either. And, they, and inflation and hyperinflation, and of course at the same time you also have massive population displacement of people moving around. So the league comes in and stabilizes Austria. Um, and it now uses its way that it connects to public opinion to try to get the general public and certainly the Austrian public to understand what sound money is, what good financial practice is. So the Austrian people and the Austrian state is on the one hand receiving food aid, on the other it's receiving financial aid, so a lot of international support. But the problem is that the Austrians don't view this international support positively. They regard it as painful foreign colonial control. So this goes back to my stress at the beginning about the, you, know, you can intend, you can mean well, uh, but the consequences are not necessarily what you'd expect. And this charge, the way that the Austrians felt about this experience of international aid um, really resonates for, for a, a long time in its public memory. Ironically, Austria was in a better position than some other countries uh, in the aftermath of the First World War in the sense that it didn't have fierce ethno-national rivalries. Everybody, almost everybody living inside um, German Austria was ethnically German. So it's not like Czechoslovakia, which starts to have really big problems with the Sudeten Germans or with, uh, you know, kind of trying to negotiate Slavic relations. But the problem is that this, the sort of, the difficulties around what international cooperation and internationalism means starts to resonate instead with the Jewish population. They started to bear the brunt of Austrians' hostility or rising hostility to internationalism as a result of it having to receive so much aid. And this point is underlined by the brilliant uh, Berta Papenheim, who's a pioneering feminist and Jewish activist. And she points to the fact that the Jewish population, because they're Jewish and Austrian, or Jewish and ethnically German, are bearers of pluralism. They are bearers of what internationalism means. And so international aid into Austria exposes them to charges of unfair distribution and unjustified favours, even though they get the same aid as everybody else. But she's worried that international aid itself means that international people get singled out. And so she asks, actually, what becomes a very reasonable but contentious question, wouldn't it be better to allow Germany to affect unjustified with Austria? Wouldn't it just be better for Austria to get the resources it needs by unifying with Germany? 
But this is not allowed <laughs> under the terms of the Paris Peace Treaty and the treaties also that Austria has to sign. And on top of it, in fact, Austria and Germany have to become completely free-trading independent states. So they are not allowed any kind of imperial protection or preferences, and that includes in trade terms. So this, don't worry too much about this slide, but it gets to the fact that Austria and Germany have very, um, are forced to be completely free trading in a, in a legal provision that actually enables Britain to establish protectionist deals with its own empire. So what the Austrians also learn is that international law applies differently to different people. It's not that the same law is used equally. Uh, international law uh, is drafted by the British in this case when it comes to trade, uh, and it means that really um, uh, Austria and Germany get a much less equal deal um, than Britain, France, and Italy. And this is really pointed out very clearly already by, in 1920 by um, an Austrian commentator, Richard Riedel, who says the byproduct of the American led, with American and British led, process of national emancipation seems to be the commercial atomization of Central Europe and the suppression of German economic expansion to the benefit of England and America. And that really kind of gets to the heart of the problem of what sustainable security is in a world of finite resources. Britain is able to arrange its security through imperial arrangements with its empire. It has a global empire on which it can draw Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, also making demands of Britain. It's not that Britain's completely in control of this, but a new independent nation state like Austria, which just has a big city and then the Alps, has to find some other way of, of building its own security. And the most obvious answer from the left and the right to some way, in some senses, is to effect Anschluss with Germany. And that's not allowed under international law. And it's still not allowed even after the Great Depression hits in 1930, 30, well, 1929, 1930, 31. So in, in July 1931, a German liberal goes to Chatham House, Moritz Bonn, and makes this case quite pointedly. Would it not be possible for Austria to effect some kind of um, economic union with Germany? It doesn't have to be political, but economic union to deal with the challenges of its security because, after all, Britain is now doing this in a set of new imperial trade deals and currency deals. Um, but the answer is no. As Bond points out, your historical connection with the Dominion, so Australia, New Zealand, and so on, is a thing of yesteryear. Our connection with Austria goes back to the time of the Magna Carta. So this is kind of international law operating in a partisan way. So I want to kind of just um, wind up with some concluding thoughts because I've tried to shoehorn a lot of material into this talk. Uh, and there's lots of things you might talk, sort of tease out to think about uh, or relate to the, the challenge of sustainable security in the 21st century. But I just want to highlight a few, a few things that occurred to me, really. The first thing is that, that history shows that the meaning and purpose 
of calls for international cooperation and not agreed, Austrians, when they were told, and we're now going to help you, increasingly became very wary of any sort of international cooperation because they viewed it as international control. And what I've tried to indicate in the kind of whip through at the end there about the way that law operated was that law, international law did not operate equally. It favoured the allied powers. It favoured Britain. It favoured France. Uh, to some extent, it favoured Italy. And, and in some, some ways, this past needs to be acknowledged um, because of the way that it shaped expectations of the future. So the problem was that the Austrians and other states like them became more and more wary of international cooperation. I think the other thing that I've learned from studying, you know, in some depth, the role of youth activists and women is that they had lots of really sensible things to say uh, and they're really visible and really present as they were in the last couple of years in relation to, uh, to the XR, to COVID-19 and so on. But they appear at a very particular moment in this history of um, post-war reconstruction. They're very visible and they're very present in 1920, 1920, 22, and then they just get gradually eased out. And they're sort of told that what they're, taught, they're working on, what they're interested in is kind of humanitarian questions. These are not the fundamental questions of where international security lies. But in fact, of course, it is. When the Great Depression hits after 1929, the rise, of, the rise of fascism, in particular in Germany, National Socialism, it's fueled by economic and social questions. But the way that, that Nazism in particular operates, but it's also true of Imperial Japan, is that they are thinking about it in, um, in unilateral terms, not in multilateral terms. They don't want to make any recourse to international arrangements. After 1945, Europe is stabilised precisely because they start with the economic and social questions and they build security out of that. Um, but, and this is the challenge for us, they also separate questions of governance. They separate economic questions from social questions. They separate health from hard security in different organizations. You have the World Health Organization, you have NATO. They don't really speak to one another, though we're trying to find ways of, of connecting them up now. So we need to think more creatively about what security means in the way that they did in 1920, because our own future depends on it. Thank you very much for your attention. Um, the first one is, uh, relates to an uh, early bit of the lecture where you spoke of suspicion of journalists at first and concerns about leaks. Mm. Was this justified and how did they negotiate those concerns? Uh, well, it was, sort of, it was sort of justified. I think certainly there was a lot of spying. So, um, and this was a relatively new phenomenon in this international world. Um, they weren't very good at uh, negotiating in the sense that there was a lot of openness. So every single meeting produced, which is wonderful for historians, every single meeting they have a full public record. You don't have summarized mm. accounts of any meeting. So in the first half of the 1920s, um, this commitment is taken incredibly seriously. The problem is that after a while, politicians uh, and, and international organizations feel very badly stung by it because in fact, 
fact, what they learn is it's quite difficult to negotiate an international arrangement, particularly on trade or on finance, if every single move is being reported in the press because currencies become more volatile, people move against companies. So, they, so the difficulty is they don't think it through. They start to take the diplomacy out of the public domain and they don't use these public organisations anymore in the way that they want. And if you compare the historical record that I've done a lot of work on, the League of Nations records, these are all, I mean, they're just extraordinary because they write every single conversation down. Every meeting is completely verbatim. If you look at the UN, everything is, is highly compressed, very synthesized. You can't tell who's saying what. Um, and I think that's no good either. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's a typical historian's answer that there has to be a kind of middle way to this. But they didn't find a ready solution to it in the 1920s and 30s. Okay, um, and then there were a couple of related questions about Save the Children and their role. Um, how successful were non-governmental organizations such as Save the Children at the time in their campaigns? And Save the Children and Advocating for Children, was this the beginning of a formalized attempt to articulate the rights of the child? Yes, great questions, yes. So the aid is hugely successful, and we know that because the people involved um, in, in distributing the aid worked very closely with PRK in particular. So what was interesting about this case is the Austrians themselves determined where the aid went. So it's not like later international missions. He determined where the aid went. He had special scientific methods he used to say, these are the hungriest children. This is how much food they should get. They were measured all the way through the process. We know that the aid worked. It worked extremely well. It's quite extraordinary. We also know how hungry the children were and how ill they were before they got the aid. You're also right to say it is absolutely the beginning of a formalised campaign for the rights of the child. So Eglantine Jeb then goes to the League of Nations and helps draft the, the first international covenant that sets out the right of the child in 1924. So it's kind of, it's absolutely connected. And, and there is also discussion at this point, it's also not new, about the right to food as an international right, as an international norm, but that disappears. There's a whole number of questions that you have raised, but I'll just um, raise uh, one that interests me, and uh, this search for sustainable security. Um, I think everybody in this uh, room will know that um, John Maynard Keynes, who observed the um, proceedings of the, for the, leading up to the Treaty of Versailles, deplored it, in fact, because it was so vindictive and the predictions he made uh, turned out to be true. And you also mentioned that there were a number of people um, who had the, uh, a small number of people who were in possession of the facts. Now, who were these people? I'm thinking, if my knowledge of history serves me correctly, from the 1930s onwards, the Times, which I think was read by all the members of the British Parliament, I understand that its reporter, was his name, I don't know whether that was the editor Dawson or the reporter in Germany, mm -hmm. um, the reports from Germany were being distorted or rewritten, in fact, by the editor of the Times, so they came out to be pro-Hitler, whereas the reports he was actually receiving point out that Hitler is a dangerous person. So I'm wondering who these um, small group of people have got all the facts. 
Oh, great. And their ability Thank to you. distort. Yeah, no, you're quite, I mean, that's why it goes back to the very first question about the role of journalists. That's one of the difficulties, really, is this sort of the determination to control the information and actually the challenge of, of dealing with you know, peace in Europe and the question of Germany after 1919 is in a way they started to try and apply some of the solutions that they hadn't thought through in the 1920s in the 1930s and they hadn't really taken on board that in fact the composition of the German government and its ambitions were radically different or significantly different to those of, of you know, the kind of more liberal democratic or social democratic leaders of the 1920s. Um, I just wanted to also come back, and you're right about Keynes. I mean, Keynes is very close to Smuts, so that's partly, and his mother and his sister are heavily involved in the Save the Children Fund. So that whole socioeconomic stress that he places on, you know, financial reparations, I mean, you know, that it's going to cripple Germany, it doesn't really cripple Germany because Germany doesn't really pay them. Austria never pays reparations either. It's a complete red herring. Um, but the, it enables actually both of those countries to establish themselves as victims in some way. Austria absolutely does that. Austria does it in 1920 and it does it again in 1945. What it doesn't recognise is it also played an important role in causing the war. <laughs> you know, so there's kind of a there's sort of there's a lot of mirror is going on here. But I also wanted to pick up on your point about depressing history because I must say I also find it a bit depressing. Um, and I, so I'm trying to you know I, you know I was trying to think about the kind of the, the more positive things about where we are. And I think one of the things which I didn't really pull through is the way that they thought about race uh, and different populations in the world in the 1920s. In that world of the 20s and the 30s, sustainable security was only ever for a small group of people. That's really what they had in mind, exactly. Either these specific experts or specific powers. In the 21st century, that kind of approach, I don't, you know, we're, we're all speaking language of one humanity uh, and I would hope that that, uh, that for me is a positive um, in comparison to, to this period. Hi, um, I was just wanting to ask um, with regards to the League of Nations how you said that Britain was a dominating um, sort of force in it, do you think that's sort of inevitable in all international institutions how for example um, NATO is dominated by the US or do you think that could probably change in the future? I think that lots of the members want it to change, <laughs> but I think, you know, that it's quite, what's interesting about these institutions is they definitely have founding moments. They're set up in a particular way that nearly always suits the dominating, dominating powers. The British didn't, weren't so keen, the British government wasn't so keen on the League in the first instance, but actually when the Americans stepped back, because they thought the Americans, this thing was going to drag them into problems all over the place, they then realised actually it's a way of you know, managing very complicated relationships in a very complicated world. I mean, the world suddenly got very complex in 1919 in the same way that it is in the 21st century. And what's interesting when you look at inside these organisations is exactly the point that you've made, which is that you see other groups and other powers pushing to have more of a voice. It's certainly a place that you can go and learn a lot as minor powers, smaller states. They, they are able to conduct international diplomacy in those sorts of settings 
in a way that they'd never be able to otherwise because they can't run a foreign office, they can't, they can't afford consulates. So there's definitely been some movement. The challenge is, and I know this because the League of Nations fails and it shuts up shop, is whether these institutions can accommodate that need for change to recognise there are new powers and there are new voices or whether they get stuck in history. Yes. Good evening. Thank you.